Here's what's coming up in this episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. And as I go through some of this material, you'll find out that that is really key, that it's autoimmune. Because in any autoimmune disease, there's three essential components in order for the disease process to start and to continue. Your, the lining of your intestine gets leaky and things get out into the bloodstream that don't belong in there. So the immune system looks at those bigger pieces of proteins and says, hey, those are foreigners and I need to attack. So it launches an attack. And as that attack continues, then the immune system goes haywire and develops antibodies to the body's own tissue. Center study, a large one in the U.S., found that 60% of children and 41% of adults diagnosed had no symptoms. So that's where I think it's really important to, to do screening in those at-risk populations. And if you've got, I mean, this is really a broad, bold statement, but if you've got anything going on that's inflammatory, and that the doctors are calling idiopathic, meaning there's no known cause, suspect celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Welcome to episode 11 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. Today we will be discussing celiac disease, which is a gluten-related disease, and how so many people are misdiagnosed or undiagnosed with celiac, um, and how much celiac has become more prevalent in our culture. So that will be a lot of fun to go over. Um... At one point in the episode, we were talking about different gluten-free foods and food items in ways to make gluten-free um, easier for people to uh, jump on board with. And one of the ways that you can do that is by um, utilizing some of the more natural food markets that we have available to us, especially in the online market. And one of those companies that provides a lot of those gluten-free foods and also paleo-rich foods is Thrive Market, which is an online retailer. And they have um, a lot of great products that you can get at really close to wholesale prices. Um, and we actually have a, a uh, a way that you can take advantage of Thrive Market by receiving 25% off of your first order with them. And if you go to summitforwellness.com slash thrive, you will be able to receive that offer. Okay, without further ado, let's get to the show. Our guest today is Terry Ward from Tualatin, Oregon. Terry works with families around the globe who have autoimmunity and food allergies to help them find joy in eating and cooking again. Terry is on fire to educate both the public and doctors about celiac disease. 
After suffering from ill health for more than a decade, she had an aha moment about her own health after the birth of her first granddaughter and now has a passion for helping others on their gluten-free healing journey. Terry is the owner of Terry Ward Nutrition and Wellness, and she has a Master's of Science in Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine. She is also a Nutritional Therapy Practitioner and a Certified Gluten Practitioner. Please welcome Terry Ward to the show. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we are so lucky to have you on here to talk about celiac because I think there's a lot of uh, misconception uh, about what celiac actually is. So could you talk a little bit about what celiac is for the people that might not know? Sure, yeah, it's definitely misunderstood even by doctors, unfortunately, and it's one of my favorite topics. So I'll start by saying that celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. And, and as I go through some of this material, you'll find out that that is really key, that it's autoimmune, because in any autoimmune disease, there's three essential components in order for the disease process to start and to continue, and it takes all three. So a lot of people think it's all about genetics, but even though you have a genetic predisposition, you also have to have an environmental trigger, meaning something from the outside is coming in, and intestinal permeability, also known as leaky gut. So what happens is um, something, and we can talk about this more too, but the, your, the lining of your intestine gets leaky and things get out into the bloodstream that don't belong in there, so the immune systems looks at those bigger pieces of proteins and says, hey, those are foreigners and I need to attack. So it launches an attack. And as that attack continues, then the immune system goes haywire and develops antibodies to the body's own tissue. So those are called auto antibodies. And it's, it's also important to note that celiac is, it's chronic, lifelong, and it's systemic. So it can cause injury to any organ in the body and it can develop at any age, even in the elderly. In fact, a lot of um, doctors are trained to think that this is a pediatric disease, but the onset of symptoms actually peak in you know, one's 50s and 60s. So is celiac a disease, it kind of sounds like it takes a little while for it to come on. This isn't something that just happens overnight, correct? Well, it can be triggered um, by different things like pregnancy. Sometimes uh, a pregnancy will trigger celiac disease or a certain stressor can trigger it. So it can come on at any time, but you will also have the, um, you'll have to have leaky gut and the genetic predisposition for that to happen. So are there specific foods that um, flare up celiac more than others? Absolutely. Gluten, and everybody's probably heard of gluten now. It's such a, such a buzzword. Uh, it's derived from the Latin word meaning glue, and it is um, the major storage protein in grains. All grains have gluten, but the culprit glutens that cause the problem come from wheat, barley, and rye, and you'll sometimes hear oats because those are generally processed in a 
facility that does those other grains and so they're cross-contaminated. Uh, gluten is what gives uh, dough, bread dough its elasticity. So, you know, you probably, if you've ever tried gluten-free bread, know that it just isn't quite what wheat bread is. Definitely not. And we'll talk about more gluten-free foods a little bit later because I'm curious about that. Um, so when it comes to celiac disease, how rare is it uh, for someone to develop it? Well, the prevalence in the general population is said to be 1%. I'm not so sure it's that low, but we can talk about the other gluten-related disorders and you know the prevalence of those is higher. It's important to remember that the prevalence in certain populations is a heck of a lot higher than 1%. So when someone goes into a doctor presenting with conditions, they're in a whole different group. They're not the general population. And if you've got a first degree relative or even a second degree relative, if you've got type one diabetes or um, children with short stature, uh, osteoporosis, those, the prevalence in those populations can be as high as 55.5%. And that's um, on the table two on my website, terryward.com forward slash celiac disease with no space between celiac and disease. But yeah, there's a table that shows all the different associated conditions and at-risk groups. And that to me is that table, anyone that belongs in one of those populations should be screened for celiac disease, whether they have symptoms or not. Is celiac more common now than, let's say, 50 years ago, or is it about the same? Oh, it has increased four times in the last five, 50 years, so it's four times higher. Do you have any idea why that would be? Well, genetics hasn't changed, obviously. But I think there's a whole lot of things that increase our intestinal permeability. We have so many environmental toxins and different assaults on our gut that cause it to be leaky. And then wheat has changed. I mean, modern wheat has two peptides in it that weren't present in the ancient wheat, like einkorn, that no one can digest not just someone with celiac disease but no human can digest these particular peptides and zonulin is a protein in the lining of the intestine that controls the permeability that's upregulated by gluten so anybody that consumes gluten has their tight junctions opened up a little bit to increase intestinal permeability in someone that has celiac disease, it doesn't close up as well, but you've still got that period where, you know, things are getting into the immune system that shouldn't be there, into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there. So you're saying just eating gluten itself, even if you aren't celiac, could cause the inflammation in your gut lining to uh, uh, create leaky gut? Yes, and I think that that's why we're seeing an increase in all autoimmune diseases. Yeah, that's kind of a scary thought. So uh, with the leaky gut, um, is this gluten uh, affecting intestinal permeability? Is that one of the main reasons why um, 
people start to develop the celiac if they have the genetic predisposition? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the integrity of our gut just can't be undervalued. That's where all disease starts is in the gut. So you mentioned earlier that there's other gluten-related disorders. Are these disorders precursors to celiac? And what type of disorders are these? Well, those are shown on that same web, web page um, in, under spectrum. On the left side, there's allergic conditions, and those are what an allergist will look for. You know, it's the where you might have anaphylaxis or asthma as a response. And then you've got the autoimmune. And celiac disease has a particular enzyme that's attacked by the autoantibodies in the intestinal villi. So you've got these little hairs lining your intestine, and those are called microvilli. It's like shag carpet. And when the autoantibodies come in, they just mow it down. And so they destroy your brush border enzymes and, you know, do all kinds of damage. And that's, that enzyme is called tra tissue transglutamase 2. And then we've got dermatitis herpetiformis, which is really celiac disease manifesting in the skin. That's um, the same enzyme, but with three. I might mix these up, but I'm pretty sure the dermatitis herpetiformis is um, TTG3. And then gluten ataxia, which manifests in the brain, is TTG6. And unfortunately, a lot of screenings when you go to the gastroenterologist or medical doctor, they're only testing for TTG2 in the gut. So it's really important to take you know into account that, like I said before, celiac can manifest in any organ. It's systemic. And you know doctors are just trained to look for it in the gut, but it can manifest a whole bunch of different ways. And then if you test positive for the antibodies, but they go in and they do histology and biopsies doing an endoscopy, they, if they don't find a certain level of damage to the intestines, they won't give you the diagnosis of celiac disease. But if you respond well to a non-gluten diet, gluten-free, they'll say that you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And it is truly a, what they call a clinical entity now, is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And there's a lot of people, experts out there now, that really believe this is on the spectrum of celiac disease. So it could just be early signs. In fact, the guidelines they use when they go in and measure the damage to those microvilli were developed by a Dr. Marsh. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this in quotes because I don't want to mess it up, but if a doctor does not treat a patient with a negative endoscopy and biopsy and a positive blood test, and that patient later develops a lymphoma or severe fracture from osteoporosis, what would be that physician's medical legal defense? Is it, it is important to be prudent in the treatment of this category of patient. So what he's essentially saying is that if you've got those antibodies, you better be, the doctors better be telling their patients not to eat gluten because 
you could develop lymphoma or osteoporosis or something down the road. This is really interesting because there's kind of a misconception out there between a lot of people that they say if uh, you don't have celiac, then gluten has no effect on you whatsoever. So to hear that um, you might not have celiac developed right now, but the gluten could still be disrupting your system or possibly leading towards these other um, gluten-related disorders, I think that's starting to change that idea that it's either you have a sensitivity to gluten and you have celiacs or you don't. There's not that fine line like a lot of people think. Right. And if, you know, you're just a little sensitive, oh, you don't need to be so careful. But if you've got antibodies, every time you eat gluten, you're inflaming your body, something fierce. And those antibodies can be produced for several weeks and stay in your body for several months. We'll get to that later, how to actually remove that from the system. But uh, earlier you mentioned that a lot of doctors only test for or do one test, why do you think that is? Why aren't they testing for all these other tests? Uh, I think medical practice is generally about 17 years behind the research. And so even though the research is out there, it just hasn't been implemented. And they really still believe that the gold standard is the intestinal biopsy. But that kind of gets my skin. I, when I first started researching, I was so anti-biopsy that I just thought they didn't have any use because there are blood tests now, some of which aren't really being used like they could be, that are much more valid and accurate than the biopsies. Because when you go in and take a biopsy, the literature says you should take four from the duodenum and two from the bulb. And I know for a fact that that's not always done in practice. There's some that take a little more, but there's a big health organization here in Portland that only takes two. And I just sent a client to a doctor who only did one from the duodenum and one from the antrum, which is the duodenum is the upper part of the small intestine and the antrum is actually the lower part of the stomach. So for her, to even be able to rely on those results is just not possible because the damage can be really spotty. But antibodies in the blood, they don't lie. So if we were to do uh, blood testing, what type of blood testing would you do? Well, I have a couple of different labs that I like to work with, and they test a lot more. Of course, both of the labs test TTG 2, 3, and 6. And then they will test you. You also have to test um, your total immunoglobulins because if those are depressed, then you may not have the response just because you don't have the immunoglobulins to measure. And then there's also one of the ones I just found out about, I've been working with it, it's really exciting. They actually test for zonulin that I mentioned before. And then something called LPS, which um, is lipopolysaccharides from uh, bacteria. And those, if those are in your blood, that's an indicator of leaky gut. Those, you know, the LPS should not be in your blood. And so that gives us something to work on. So you measure it and then, you know, as you do some work and healing, you can say, okay, what does it look like now? So are those blood tests 
um, are they covered by insurance, if you know, or are those ones that you have to order for yourself? Typically, the two labs that I work with aren't covered by insurance. Um, there may be some insurances that cover them if they're ordered by a doctor, and I'm, I'm always happy to work with somebody's doctor um, to try even educate them and try and explain the labs to them because most of them aren't familiar with them unless they're um, like a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor. The other thing that these labs measure are some of the other components that are in wheat because it's not just gluten that can be a problem in wheat and it sometimes, well, one study found that nearly one-third of, of 920 patients with irritable bowel syndrome were really suffering from wheat sensitivity. And sometimes I'm, you probably know from working with your clients that Sometimes it's not the food that's the culprit, it's the glyphosate or, you know, the fact that it's not organic, some pesticide that's on the food. Wouldn't you think that's the case in your practice? Yeah, and it's interesting because um, it was like a month and a half ago I went down to uh, Chile, so the other end of the Americas, and uh, a lot of their one of their big staples down there is bread, kind of like here. But typically I have reactions to gluten. And when I was down there, I was like, let's just see. Let's see what happens because I've heard that internationally um, wheat is processed a lot differently. And sometimes uh, people who have reactions to gluten in the States don't have the same reactions elsewhere. And I noticed that I wasn't having those same reactions down in Chile like I do at home. And so it was really interesting to see just firsthand how much different a food could be, even though it's still containing gluten. That's a very good point. Um, I've heard a lot of people say they can go to Europe and eat bread, but when they come back, they can't. And, you know, when we think about our ancestors, uh, wheat was stored for long periods of time and sometimes it fermented accidentally but a lot of times you know it was made into sourdough and so it was not only just a different variety of wheat but it was prepared differently and that might also explain you know the increase in uh, celiac disease and other aspects of that yeah I would assume so mm-hmm so um, is celiac more common in the States than elsewhere in the world? No, I don't know for sure. I believe it is, but I can't say for sure. What type of symptoms would you be looking for when you are trying to refer someone out to get some blood testing done? Oh, gosh, they're all over the place. <laughs> because I think that's why, well, if we look at, you know, the fact that um, more than 80% of those with celiac remain undiagnosed and it takes them, you know, up to a decade or so to get diagnosed. We have to look at why, why are doctors misdiagnosing and missing the diagnosis? Um, I, I think it's just because it can pre present in so many different ways. They're trained to look at you know the classical celiac symptoms of abdominal pain, diarrhea, malnutrition, you know vomiting and acid reflux 
uh, in children, failure to thrive and um, muscle wasting, that kind of thing. But it can manifest anywhere. I think I have a table. I do. There's table one on that page with extra intestinal, meaning outside the intestine, and ways that celiac can present. And, you know, typically doctors aren't educated in that, but a multi-center study, a large one in the U.S., found that 60% of children and 41% of adults diagnosed had no symptoms. So that's where I think it's really important to, to do screening in those at-risk populations. And if you've got, I mean, this is really a broad, bold statement, but if you've got anything going on that's inflammatory and that the doctors are calling idiopathic, meaning there's no known cause, suspect celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Because gluten sensitivity is very high inflammatory and it can settle anywhere in the body. It's pretty amazing how much better people feel if they take out gluten even for a couple weeks. Whether they have celiac or not, they just remove it from their diet. Right, and that's really important to bring up because if you want to be tested, don't take it out because the tests won't be accurate if you're not regularly eating gluten. And some doctors aren't aware of that. I sent a client in who wasn't eating gluten and the doctor went ahead and drew her blood anyway and I just wanted to kind of scream. But, you know, there was a survey of 130 family physicians that revealed almost 73% of them felt they hadn't been given adequate training in autoimmune disease and 57% they said they'd only had one or two lectures on autoimmune disease in medical school. So, you know, it's, it's understandable that it's being missed, but it's not acceptable to me. We've got to get out there and, you know, educate people. And I want to educate doctors too that are willing to learn because it's just sad when, you know, sometimes patients if they're misdiagnosed or it's just con they're considered crazy, so they put them on antidepressants or immunosuppressants, and it's sad. That's one of the scary things that so many doctors feel like they haven't had enough uh, training in that because you said earlier that it could take um, up to a decade for people to get diagnosed, and to have an autoimmune disease for that long and go undiagnosed, that's really tough on your body. Yeah, because in that period of time, it's likely you're going to have more than one autoimmune disease developing. And it, it usually takes several doctors, too, before you figure it out. So it's, it's pretty sad. I, I do want to say that I will guide people through these tests and run them for them, but I don't diagnose celiac disease. I will send you to your doctor with the lab results and you can discuss if you want a diagnosis in your chart with them. I work with helping you give the, your body what it needs to support the healing and you know through a gluten-free diet. So you mentioned how if it's taken over 10 years for celiac to be diagnosed then a lot of times multiple autoimmune issues pop up within that time because you just haven't addressed the issue. 
do you think that this uh, sensitivity to gluten could be one of the main causes for a lot of autoimmunity? And do you think this is an area that should be explored more? Well, I definitely think the upregulation of zonulin making that gut leakier is probably a contributing factor. But there's so many other things too, and I can kind of get into that later about you know, how, how to heal the gut because added sugars and refined carbohydrates, alcohol, um, blood sugar imbalance, uh, microbial infections and certain medications, stress, uh, excess exercise, all of those things can make the gut leakier. And I think, you know, we're seeing a whole lot more of those than we did years ago. So do you want to jump right in and start talking about some ways that people could um, help themselves out with uh, avoiding celiac or to uh, avoid the sensitivities to gluten? Well, again, the first step is if you want to be tested, don't remove gluten. You know, contact me or someone else and get the test done. If you know you react to gluten and you're willing to be completely diligent about never eating it again, then maybe you don't need testing. Um, but I always encourage people to be tested because I think it makes them more committed. I was working with someone that said, I don't need a test. I don't need a biopsy. I know gluten bothers me and I'm going to eliminate it 100%. And then the next thing I knew, she'd read on the internet that she could have celiac, or she had the, the antibodies, she'd had the TTG test. So it was pretty likely she had celiac. So she's eating sourdough bread because she read on the internet that that was okay. And for some people that might be okay if you're just a little sensitive or you're reacting to a certain component of wheat but that's never okay for celiac disease. So, you know, it's really important. The gluten-free diet is considered the only treatment for celiac disease. And yes, it has to be a lifelong diet, but unfortunately it's not enough. I mean, most people will feel better within a few weeks, but healing generally takes at least six to 12 months and sometimes it never happens completely because they aren't supporting the other things that need to happen. In fact, this is, this is really scary, Brian. After the diagnosis of celiac disease, the risk of death goes up substantially. And I know that sounds really weird, but depending on the study that you look at within the first one to five years, um, it can increase like up to fivefold in, from all causes of death, including suicide. And so why is that? We have to look at wheat constitutes 78% of oligosaccharides in the American diet. So what are oligosaccharides? They're prebiotics. So in celiac disease, the microbiota, all the gut bacteria are really messed up and probiotics help rebuild that but prebiotics are what the good bacteria feed on so when you take out gluten if you're just eating like gluten-free products that are higher glycemic and you know lower fiber than their wheat 
component, you know, comparables, you've done a big disservice to your gut and your microbiota. So, you know, your immune system is going to be significantly compromised and your brain function too, because it's all tied to the gut, right? Yeah. So in that case, what do you use for prebiotics? Um, it depends. Um, it's, I mean, the simple way would just be to make sure you at least eat a starchy vegetable every day. Some people, it might take a little bit more, like some psyllium husk or something like that. What starchy vegetables are you talking about? Are you talking like sweet potatoes or something else? Yeah, that's my favorite right there. <laughs> but you want to vary them. You know, parsnips, any root vegetable is going to have good inulin, which is also a prebiotic. What about squashes? Yeah, those are great. If people are on a gluten-free diet and that's not enough and you still need to work on the leaky gut, what are some things people could do um, for the leaky gut? Well, I like to use what they call the five R's of functional medicine. So you have to start by removing, and this is where I think it's really important to work with a professional or someone that knows what they're doing because it's, I mean, you'll just save yourself a ton of grief and time. And, and doing it right and not trying to guess and wonder if Dr. Google is right. But the first thing is removing everything that inflames you, that um, initiates, you know, an immune response in your body. There can be a lot of other foods because um, there's something like gluten is a protein. And when that gets out in your bloodstream, the immune system can actually see certain sequences of amino acids in that. And they see those same sequences in casein, which is a protein in milk and in the thyroid gland. So you can get multiple attacks going on there. And so f figuring out all of the things that you're sensitive, allergic or intolerant to are important removing, you know, stress and balancing your hormones. Um, there's other things too. And then we have to replace because celiac is a malabsorption issue. Um, then it's sometimes nice to work with your doctor too and get nutritional testing because you, with malabsorption, you probably have nutritional deficiencies, nutrient deficiencies. And so we have to replace those nutrients and we have to replace the fiber we talked about. Uh, sometimes the digestive system needs more support to replacing enzymes and then re-inoculate is the third R. So that's restoring the microbiota. There are certain strains that are important and the prebiotics. And then the fourth one is repairing the, the gut and reducing the inflammation. There's uh, some nutrients that you can use to really help that process along and then rebalancing our restorative processes in the body because you can imagine when you've been sick for that long and nobody's helping you you're just a complete stressed out mess <laughs> so you know you kind of want to get into maybe meditation or make sure your sleep is optimized those kind of things to rebalance so one of the really interesting things that you brought up is um, 
the molecular structure of gluten is similar to um, your thyroid gland. So is there a big correlation between celiac disease and Hashimoto's? There is definitely big correlation. I see a lot of both in the same people. And the doctors, thank goodness, are finally waking up. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them are telling their Hashimoto's patients do not eat gluten under any circumstance because it really can damage the thyroid. Are these doctors also finding that the people with Hashimoto's might have undiagnosed celiac or are they just saying remove the gluten regardless? Well, I think that there's a big risk there. I think like type 1 diabetes and Hashimoto's both, there's a big risk. They're associated so it works both ways. If you've got one or the other, you really need to be alert and taking precautions so that you don't get the other. Okay, so let's say that I have, let's say I have celiac disease, uh, or I think I have celiac disease, and I want to be on a gluten-free diet. I'm working with a practitioner. Typically, the gluten-free products that you find in the stores still aren't that healthy of options, and a lot of times they don't taste very good. So, what are some ways that you make food? Um, taste better and how do you use gluten-free products with your clients? Gluten-free products is something that kind of makes me cringe a little bit because it's mostly processed food and like I said before they're usually higher glycemic even than your wheat products. I just don't like anyone eating processed food. It, the real food, whole food, nutrient-dense foods are the best for us and you know if you think about fruits vegetables nuts seeds berries fish meat seafood those naturally don't have gluten so if you're eating those things which we all should be you're not going to get gluten if you're eating at a restaurant you do have to watch out because they like to coat the you know meat and flour before they throw it in they'll cook you know and Get, you'll get cross-contamination, but it's real easy to use. Like if, if you really want to put flour on your meat before you fry it up or cook it, just use rice flour instead of wheat flour. There are a lot of all-purpose gluten-free flours out there now that you can buy already mixed up. I've always used, um, I'm sure you could Google Carol Finster's all-purpose flour blend. That's the one I have always had great success with that. As long as you use a little xanthan gum with it. Um, now, if you're using these other flours, a lot of times they don't have the same consistency as um, regular all-purpose flour that most people use that contains the gluten. So uh, when you're cooking with it, are you having to change the way you make your recipes by adding another stuff along with these flours, or do you use more flours, less flour? Uh, that's where the xanthan gum comes in. I'm not a real fan of gums, but it's necessary because the gum kind of does what the gluten does, and you're never probably going to get a side-by-side -side test where the gluten-free product is better in, than the wheat product, but I can say I do Bob's Red Mill gluten-free brownie mix. I use an 
little bit of extra xanthan gum in it. I use ghee instead of butter because I'm sensitive to casein. And I use port wine instead of the liquid. And those are killer brownies. People eat them. They're so fudgy. People eat them and they're like, there's no way these are gluten-free, <laughs> but they're killer. So there is ways to make food taste really good when you're eating gluten-free. Oh, absolutely. I've been doing it for more than a decade. And, you know, people come to my house and they don't know even that they're eating gluten-free. I planned our class reunion last summer and it was in a small town and I swore the caterer to secrecy that she would not reveal the entire menu for the weekend was gluten-free and nobody knew it until they saw me eating the brownies. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the um, interesting thing about people being more sensitive to gluten now is people are starting to get more creative with the way that they cook and starting to have to revert back to um, older times and eating a lot less processed types of foods. Yeah, it's much easier now. I mean, there's gluten-free products out there that weren't available before. And now you're seeing paleo products that kind of make up for the unhealthiness of gluten-free products because you have, you know, more whole food type of flours in those. They're not as refined. But those are definitely improvements and options that weren't available, you know, even 10 years ago. So do you have any other recommendations for people who maybe think that they're um, sensitive to gluten, might have celiac disease, or just overall aren't feeling very well and need some help? Well, I definitely think that you should do, you know, you could do a test for a few days and see if you notice a difference, but then put it back in your diet if you want to be tested. Uh, yeah, what what I'd like to offer, I thought about just offering the testing, but it's so individual, you know, I would like to offer a free strategy session to anyone who wants to talk about whether or not they think they need testing, what type of testing would be appropriate, you know, just kind of develop a strategy on how they should proceed, you know, maybe they've already eliminated gluten and we can figure out what the best route is for them. But on that web page, if you go to the very bottom, there's a little plus sign for the toggle. If you open that up, you'll see that I'm offering $50 off coupon for any lab test that you do through me with, it includes a consultation. And so basically the $50 off is coming off of that consultation and then the free strategy session to help you decide how you want to proceed. And that is, is that at terryward.com slash celiac disease? Yes. Celiac disease, all one word. And Terry is T-E-R-R-I-W-A-R-D. Yes. Do, where else can people find you on the internet? Are you on any social media pages or... I am. I have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. The Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Terry Ward Nutrition. And that's also the extension for my YouTube channel. 
Awesome, Terry. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We appreciate all the information you brought forward about celiac disease, and hopefully we can start to um, shrink that number of 80% undiagnosed people or cases out there and hopefully get some more people the help that they need. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I'm just so passionate about this because I don't think people realize that, you know, celiac disease, if you if it's untreated, it will kill you. It may not say celiac disease on your death certificate, but it will cause something that is on your death certificate. So this is very serious. And not only will it kill you, it can also make your life leading up to that point just miserable. Yes. Definitely. So there's help out there. And I'm here if someone wants my help. Thank you very much. Okay, if you want to find out more about Terry Ward, go to terryward.com. And also, if you want to download some of her visual aids and see more information about celiac, then visit visit terryward.com forward slash celiac disease. All one word. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to whatever podcast app that you are listening to. And if you are listening via iTunes, if you could go under the ratings and review and leave us a review, that would be extremely helpful so that we know uh, what you guys like and what you guys don't like and still be able to uh, bring this show for you guys and keep providing these opportunities for you. And we will see you all next time.